He took things off on his fingers as he listed them. Air scrubbers, lights, heating, ventilation. And that's on top of all the unusual stuff needed to keep a city like this up and running. He paused for a moment to catch his breath. And have you seen the hover sleds? They're built to a completely different design than anything I've come across before. I've got to ask them for the specs. We could learn a lot by understanding the Catacoots technology. They seem to have a very different way of approaching things than the Republic. There was no response. Amos glanced at Deatrix and Obik, who were sitting across the table from him in the Ambassador's Lounge. They'd been led there by the Catacoot after the comms team had arrived. It was as impressive as everything else they'd seen in Diurna, with tall ceilings, elaborate wall hangings, and tiny vents in the floor that gave out little puffs of sweet-scented air. Amos leaned forward in his chair. You must love this stuff. Visiting new worlds, meeting new people, seeing the wonders of the galaxy. He took another sip of the violet fruit juice he'd been given by one of the Catacoot's strange skeletal host droids. It tasted good, full of sugar. Maybe too much sugar. Anyway, aren't these drinks good? Neither Deatrix nor Obik looked as though they knew how to respond. And he says I talk too much, muttered Cam. Came the beeping reply from GT-11, who was loitering nearby, apparently listening to every word. Cam glowered at GT-11 with mock hurt. Really? I couldn't agree more, GT, said Amos, beaming at the Twi'lek. Cam shook his head. Obik was drumming his fingertips on the tabletop, looking thoughtful, EX-9B was hovering over his shoulder. It seemed reluctant to mingle with GT-11. Apparently, there'd been some sort of falling out between them after EX-9B had accused GT-11 of being lazy. It hadn't gone down well. To be honest, said Obik, most of the places we visit aren't even half as sophisticated as this. What the Catacoot have achieved here is hugely impressive. Amos nodded enthusiastically. He nudged Cam. See? Obik agrees. I think you should stop drinking that stuff now, Amos. The sugar is making you all jittery. It is? I feel perfectly fine. Better than fine, in fact. He brought the glass up toward his lips again. Trust me, said Cam, reaching over and plucking the glass from the Thelan's fingers. Amos frowned at him for a moment and then shrugged. Maybe Cam was right. Now that he mentioned it, Amos was feeling a little jittery. Deatrix had started pacing the room, making a clacking sound with her tongue. Amos wondered if she'd had a little too much of the sugary fruit juice, too. They're taking their time, she said to no one in particular. They have a lot to discuss, said Obik. I know, I know said Deatrix. It's just... You want to know what happened to Rock and his team, finished Cam. Deatrix nodded. That's why we're all here, isn't it? An entire team went missing on Abadas, and now we're enjoying the Catacoots' hospitality like nothing happened? But where's Rock and Malik, Jonath and Branda? She looked at them each in turn. Something doesn't feel right. That's because something isn't right, someone said from the doorway. 
Amos glanced around to see a familiar tall, slim Jedi. Salandro was human, with copper-hued skin and brown hair that featured a prominent blonde streak. She had her shield strapped to her back at the shoulders, and her lightsaber hilt clipped to her belt. Beside her was her Padawan, Ruper, a shorter human Jedi with darker skin and deep brown eyes. Salandro, Ruper, said Deatrix. What news? Salandro glanced over at Amos and Cam. She nodded in acknowledgement. The Catacode have outlined the situation, she said. She told them about Gloam, the Catacode's request for help, and the previous team's mission to investigate the creatures. Then she related the story that Rillick had told them about what had happened on the other world. But Rock must have sent Aitzi after the attack, said Amos. He mentioned the ambush in his message, and also explains why the droid was so beaten up. The asteroids didn't help, but maybe it was damaged earlier, when the team's ship was destroyed, finished Cam. That means Rillick is wrong. We know at least Rock must have survived, even after Rillick fled in the mining ship. Precisely, said Salandro. He could still be out there, so could the others. They lapsed into silence as they all considered the implications. Could any of them have possibly survived so long alone on a hostile world? Amos didn't like their chances, even for someone as used to the harsh frontier life as Rock. But then again, could they ignore the possibility? We're going after them, said Ruper. Good, said Deatrix. She grinned at Ruper. Because if you'd said you weren't, you might have had a mutiny on your hands. Same goes for me and Nibs, said Obik, patting EX-9B, who was still hovering above his left shoulder. The droid emitted a plaintive little bleep. Salandro nodded. Thank you. It's undoubtedly dangerous. If a Jedi Master like Rock could be caught off guard... Her voice trailed off, her point clear. We're a team, said Deatrix. Besides... If you think I'm letting any of you get your hands on my ship, you've got another thing coming. Amos glanced at Cam. A flicker of understanding passed between them. He cleared his throat and rubbed unconsciously at his head spikes. Ahem. You can count on us too. Me, Cam, we'll come. He swallowed, then moistened his lips with the tip of his tongue. To Glom, where there's danger and scary, hostile creatures. Cam nodded and passed Amos his drink pack. Amos glugged the rest of it down appreciatively. Salandro smiled. Your courage does you credit, but there's something I would ask you to do here on Abydos if you will. Amos tried to hide his relief behind his glass, despite the fact it was empty. There's something wrong with the comms, said Salandro. The Catacoot have lost all contact with Gloam, and even here in Dierna, long-range transmissions are meeting unusual interference. Comms? said Amos. Cam shot him a look and then prized the empty glass from his hands. We noticed on the way in, said the Twi'lek, there was some sort of interruption to the connection, like a relay was down. Or something is creating a dead zone, said Amos. A dead zone? asked Deatrix. You think someone might be messing with the comms on purpose? 
No, no. It's probably nothing like that, said Amos. There could be any number of reasons why they're down. We won't know until we investigate. The thought of examining a new alien communication system filled Amos with utter glee. Plus, there were no dangerous creatures in Diurna. The relief was palpable. Then you'll do it, said Salandro. Of course. We're going to help, said Cam. He glanced at Salandro. Will the Kataku give us access to their systems? Salandro nodded. They've already agreed. They're anxious to help. In fact, two of the Catacoot have volunteered to come with us to Gloam. Midic, the woman who first greeted us when we arrived, and Rillic, so he can show us where the other team were attacked. Said GT-11. Salandro glanced at the droid, then back at Cam and Amos. Looks like GT-11 would like to stay and help with the comm system, she said. Amos beamed. We'd be delighted to have you, GT said EX-9B. Exclaimed GT-11. Said EX-9B, its pitch growing shrill. That's not true and you know it, said Obik. Neither of you are lazy. And GT, I think you should take that remark back. Said GT-11. Salandro crossed her arms. Hardly an apology, is it? GT-11 spun on the spot to demonstrate his annoyance. Ruper sighed. Come on, GT. The droid turned to look at her, then expelled a jet of gas as if to offer a reluctant sigh. He said. Muttered EX-9B in response. There. Obit got to his feet, shaking his head. So when do we leave? The Catacoot are already packing provisions said Ruper. She was smiling in a way that made Amos think she was actually excited about venturing to a hostile world. We'll be on our way in an hour. Amos sighed and leaned back in his chair. Time for another round of juice, then, he said. Chapter 11 She's going to kill us all! Rillick was clinging to the edge of the table in the Umber Falls common area, as if his life depended on it. His talon fingertips were digging furrows in the tabletop. Midic, sitting nearby, rolled her eyes in exasperation. You must have made this trip over a hundred times before, Rillick. Ruper got the sense that the woman didn't have a lot of time for Rillick's melodrama. The other catacoot coughed. Yes, but never in a tin can like this, and never with a Republic pilot at the helm. The ship gave a sudden shudder, slewing dramatically to the right as it was battered by yet another brutal crosswind. They were flying through the heart of the dark storm clouds that filled most of Gloam's upper atmosphere. Deatrix was doing an admirable job holding them steady. But there was no doubt it was some of the worst conditions Ruper had ever flown in. She peered out of the viewport at the sea of ominous, swirling gray. The threads of lightning forking through the gloom. It was no wonder none of the Catacoot wanted to return. Especially Rillick. After everything he'd been through. The fact he'd volunteered at all was a credit to him. How can you be so calm? 
said Rillick, his voice rising in pitch as the Umberfall swooped left, flipping onto its side to avoid a flickering arc of lightning. Rupert braced herself against the bulkhead and offered him a lopsided grin. I trust in the Force, she said. And I know Deatrix is one of the best pilots in the whole Republic. She didn't add that she was also feeling deeply unsettled as they approached the troubled world. Not because of Deatrix's flying, but because something about Gloom just felt wrong. Where the living force usually appeared to Ruper in the form of bright, swirling colors, when she closed her eyes and reached out across the dark planet below, everything was washed in muddy browns and suffocating grays. There was more wrong there than the environmental disaster that had blighted the skies, and she couldn't help thinking that it was somehow going to end up being connected to Rock and what had become of his team. If her instincts could be trusted, that was. She'd been going over and over what had happened on Abydos. She hadn't been wrong, exactly, leading the others to that gully. But if circumstances had been different, she might well have stumbled headlong into a trap. It was pure luck that Midic and the other Catacoot had turned out to be friendly. Well, luck and a bit of diplomacy. But Ruper couldn't help wondering what might have happened to Deatrix, Obik, and the droids if things hadn't gone their way. She was a Jedi, and that meant she had responsibilities. The others trusted her. She needed to live up to that trust. Maybe this was something she'd talk to Salandro about later. Her master always had a good perspective on such matters. A way of making things seem right when Ruper was feeling uncertain. The ship banked again, then turned into a sequence of swooping rolls as Deatrix finally dipped them out of the thick clouds, swooping low above the bleak landscape of the planet's surface. Rillick emitted another wet, rasping cough. It didn't sound good. Rupert had been trying to persuade the Catacoot to let the medic look him over, but so far, Rillick had refused. Rupert wasn't sure if it was stubbornness or a fear of finding out what was really wrong. It seemed many of the Catacoot miners suffered from the same affliction, and Rillick was unwilling to talk about it. He was unwilling to talk about a lot of things, unless it was to criticize Deatrix's flying. The others were all in the cockpit, and Rupert couldn't say that she blamed them. The Umberfall wasn't a particularly small ship, but it somehow felt cramped with both Midic and Rillick aboard. Pathfinder teams spent so much time together on their ships, or out together among the stars, that they formed a close bond. Rupert supposed they'd become like a family, in a way. They were used to each other's company, and they had their routines, so it always seemed a bit strange when others were invited into their home. Not that anyone had objected to the Catacoot joining them for the mission, of course. Quite the opposite. They were grateful for the help, especially considering what Rillick had gone through to get off the planet in the first place. But still, it was different, having strangers aboard. Something that Rupert still hadn't gotten used to. Or perhaps it was just her own self-doubt making her feel out of sorts. The ship bucked again, causing Rillick to wail, and then they were settling into a steady descent. 
Rupert watched through the viewport as the landing pad seemed to swim up to meet them. The ship settled with a soft thud. Outside, mist curled around the ship, and the sky was dark and gloomy. Dietrich had landed among the bristling spires and gantries of an old mineral refinery, part of the abandoned mining operations on Gloam. The spiky, angular towers loomed out of the mist. Rupert gave an involuntary shiver, imagining what it must be like to be lost out there, beneath that brooding sky. She thought of Malik and what it must have been like for him, and now she was following in his footsteps. She could hear the others chatting as they made their way from the cockpit. The talk was subdued, lacking the excitement that usually accompanied their arrival on a new world. Everyone was aware of the stakes and what they might be facing on Gloam. She turned at the alarming sound of more coughing from Rillick. He was standing, holding himself up with one hand on the table, while he bent forward at the waist. His expression pained. Middick, too, was on her feet. She reached out to take his other arm, but he pushed her away, spluttering. I'm all right. It's just a... just a... He broke down into another frantic bout of coughing, and then promptly toppled over, collapsing on the ship's deck. Help! Middick was immediately by Rillick's side, dropping to her knees to cup his face in her hand. Rillick! Can you hear me? He groaned, but didn't reply. Rupert hurried to join them. Obik? Ninebe? We're here, said Obik, puffing as he rushed over. EX-9B was hovering over his left shoulder. Yes, Nibs. Fetch my emergency kit. The droid swiveled around, firing its thrusters to propel it through the air to the lockers on the other side of the common area, where Obik kept his medical supplies. It opened the locker and began rooting around inside. If you could give me some room, said Obik, ushering Rupert and Middick back. He kneeled beside the fallen catacoot. Rupert could sense the others gathering around, all of them being sure to give Obik plenty of room to work. Obik held Rillik's wrist, silently mouthing as he counted out the beats of Rillik's pulse. He stooped low, listening to the catacoot's labored breathing for a moment. He glanced up at Rupert. His breathing is shallow. Pass me that pillow. Rupert did as she was asked fetching the pillow from the sofa where Rillick had been sitting. Rillick groaned again as Obik lifted his head lightly to slide it beneath. It is the miner's curse, said Medic. The wrath that sets into their lungs when they spend too long in the mines. It comes to them all after a time. There is nothing we can do. For a moment, Rupert thought the other catacoot was being unkind. But the concern was evident on Middick's face. This was just her way. She was making a statement of fact as she understood it. We can't just leave him to die, said Rupert. There must be something we can do. We've tried. The illness is caused by mineral particles lodging inside the lungs. They embed in the tissue and begin to reproduce until the lungs eventually stop working becoming lumps of mineral themselves. We searched for a cure for many, many years, 
but we found nothing that can halt the disease's progress once a person becomes infected. Then let Obit try. The Republic has access to medicines from hundreds of worlds, for thousands of species. There must be something he can do, said Ruper. She felt Salandro's reassuring hand on her shoulder. Obik? said Salandro. Obik met her eye. His expression was serious. I don't know. His physiology is different from any I've seen before. There's nothing in Nib's databanks either. We checked earlier. I need to run some tests before I can even begin to think about treating him. He frowned in concern as Rillick gave another wheezing cough. I think me and Nib should stay here on a ship with Rillick. Agreed, said Salandro. He's already told us where we're most likely to find Rock and the others. In the ruins of the old city. It's not far from our landing zone. We should be able to pinpoint the location on the map and find our way from there. Middick nodded. Then it is done. I will do what I can for him, said Obik. On the ground, Rillick coughed weakly and rolled onto his side. Chapter 12 With Rillick safely moved to the small medical bay at the rear of the ship, overseen by Obik, the others had gathered in the common area to discuss their next move. EX-9B, having assisted Obik in making his patient comfortable, had been temporarily commandeered to help interrogate the topographical maps of the area, which had been uploaded into its databanks before leaving Abadas. It was hovering above their heads, projecting a large hologram into the center of the space, and the others had gathered around it. Salandro had her arms folded across her chest as she peered thoughtfully at the three-dimensional image, it seemed to show a rugged landscape formed from jagged rocks and peaks. Some of the low, flat areas appeared to have flooded, and there was a small wooded area that Middick had explained was a shifting forest created by trees that actually uprooted themselves and shuffled around on their stumpy roots to follow the tides of the seasonal lakes. But the thing that had drawn everyone's interest was the rendering of a cliff face that appeared to be dotted with a series of doorways and windows, most of them set into the rock at over 30 meters high. So the city is built into the side of the cliff? said Salandro. Middick shrugged. Yes, more so I believe. I have never been to Gloom. I'm told the tunnels lead back into the cliff and, from there, down into the mines deep inside the rock. Surely it would have been more practical to mine from the base of the cliff, said Deatrix. Why open shafts so high up in the facing of the rock? Because the early engineers were making use of the ruins that were already there, Middick said a little defensively. Why could new tunnels when the ancients had already done it for them? But... Salandro held up her hand to interject. Debating the practicalities of the mining operations isn't going to help us find the other Pathfinder team. If this is where they were last seen, then this is where we go. Deatrix nodded. Or at least that was what Ruper imagined. She tried focusing on the debate, but her eyes and her attention kept being drawn to the viewport beyond the flickering projection. It was like something out there was calling to her, 
deep down inside, like it was reaching out, wrapping its fingers around her wrist, and trying to drag her into the night, to lead her to something. The problem was, she couldn't tell what that something was, and whether it meant her harm. Either way, it felt important. She closed her eyes and reached out with the Force, seeking the reassuring peace of its presence. The Force is with me. I am one with the Force. The sounds of the conversation going on around her seemed to dim. Colors flowed and blurred. The bright greens, pinks, blues, and yellows that represented the presence of her friends in the Force mingled and swirled all around her. She pushed out farther, beyond the boundary of the ship, into the cold nightscape beyond. Immediately, she recoiled. The hue changed. Darker colors impinged on her mind. Blacks, grays, midnight purples, and bruised reds. Everything seemed distant, faint. Sounds were just echoes. And she was alone. So alone. Rupert fought the urge to pull back. To surround herself with the vibrant life of her friends. She had to know. She had to find what was calling to her. She followed its pull through the darkness. Hello? Who's there? She was walking in a sea of black. Bleak. Silent. Just rocks. Endless rocks. And then, there it was. A dim glow right in the midst of that endless wash of emptiness. The spark of a life touching the living force. A fading glow. A lone traveler among the shadows. And it was looking directly at her. Rupert opened her eyes with a gasp. She was standing in the center of the common area, right in the middle of the hologram. Blue light flickered all around her. The others were all staring at her in silence. Rupert realized she was holding out her hand. Her pointer finger was extended. She was indicating a place on the map, a spot among the rocks, out in the middle of nowhere, to the west of the ruined city that marked their destination. Embarrassed, she took a deep breath. She flicked her eyes toward her master, who was looking at her with concern. Rupert, are you okay? I... um... She didn't know what to say, how to explain what had happened. And even if she could, she didn't know if she should. What if it was nothing? Worse, what if it was a trap? Or another mistake like the one on Abadas. Salandro stepped forward, walking into the hollow to stand beside her. It shimmered like water around them before settling again. EX-9B made a sound that reminded Ruper of the exasperated noises Obik made when he was losing an argument. Ruper still hadn't lowered her arm. What is it, Padawan? Salandro's tone was gentle. What did you see? Rupert turned to Salandro and saw the look of utter trust, of affection, in the woman's eyes. How could she risk letting her down? It's all right, Rupert, said Salandro. Tell me, what's there? Rupert swallowed. I don't know. A light. 
a life. Alone in the dark. Someone is out there, and their light is fading. Salandro nodded. Did you recognize that light? Have you seen it before? Rupert understood then that Salandro had listened to her. Had really listened. Striving to understand the way Rupert visualized the Force. How each person could be identified by the swirling colors that radiated from them. That's what Salandro had been doing these past few months. Pushing Rupert to reach out farther and farther. To test her. To help her learn to trust her instincts. Teaching her. No, I don't think so. But the only person I know from the other team is Malik. Rupert lowered her hand. EX-9B blinked off the projection. It could be anyone. But I know it's a person. And I know they're in trouble. Could they be hostile? Asked Deatrix. Does it matter? Asked Rupert. There's someone out there in need. Alone. On this dangerous world. They might not want our help. But isn't it our duty to try? Salandro took Rupert's hand and gave it a gentle squeeze. I'm proud of you, Rupert. So proud. But Deatrix is right. We can't give up on the others. They could be trapped in the ruined city or the mines, like Rillick said. What if it is one of them? said Rupert. What if the person I saw is Rock or one of the others? They might have gotten away, like Rillick did. They might be lost and alone out there, hoping that someone is coming to find them. They reached out to me, Master. I felt it. Like they were trying to guide me to them. All her previous doubts were melting away. She knew she was right about this. She felt it. Salandro looked pained. It could be dangerous. Everything about this mission is dangerous said Rupert. You know that, and I know you agree with me, deep down. We have to find whoever is out there. They lapsed into an awkward silence. I do not pretend to understand this light you believe you have felt, said Middick. But we have mystics who speak of the deep connection between all living things. Like the roots of an immense tree, worming beneath the soil, they weave together... The lives of all Katakut, all creatures, all things that grow. In this way, we are all one. We touch the lives of everything and everyone around us. She stared at Rupert, her red eyes intense. I believe you. Rupert felt tears prick the corners of her eyes. Thank you, she said. You must trust your instincts, said Middick. She looked to Salandro. And so, too, must we seek your missing friends in the ruins. You want us to split up? said Deatrix. She shrugged. That could work. I'll go with Medic to the ruins. You two go and do your Jedi stuff first and then meet us there. Salandro's brows furrowed as she tried to weigh up the decision. If Rillick's story is true, those creatures are deadly, even to a Jedi. Deatrix grinned. We already know Rillick got it wrong. Rock made it out to send a message, didn't he? And besides, I have no intention of taking on any dangerous creatures. 
If I see anything even vaguely terrifying, I'm planning to run and hide. Middick smiled, baring her fangs. Then it seems we are decided. We must save everyone we can. Salandro nodded slowly. Obik and Nineby remain here on the ship with Rillek. The two of you go and explore the ruins. Carefully. Rupert and I will make a brief detour to check in on this possible survivor before coming to find you. Deatrix turned, crossed the room, and collected her pack, then hoisted it onto her shoulder. Don't look so worried, Rupert. Everything is going to be fine. Rupert sucked in a deep breath. She only wished she had Deatrix's optimism. Chapter 13 how many hours had passed since he'd last heard the creatures moving about outside? Four? Five? Beside him, Spence had finally dropped off to sleep and was snoring loudly, like he always did, his lips rumbling with every exhaled breath. Doss found it strangely comforting and annoying. They propped themselves up against the back wall of the small cave, facing the inside of the barricade. They'd cut the lights and wrap themselves in as many layers as possible to keep off the chill. Spence had sat clutching his makeshift weapon in both hands, squeezing it so hard that Doss thought he risked crushing it if he wasn't careful. For hours, the creatures had paced outside the cave entrance, even once or twice testing the barricade with the occasional thump or scrape. So far, though, they hadn't made a real effort to get in, not since Spence had jabbed at one of them through the hole, sending it running off, whimpering. Doss glanced at his dad. Spence had stayed awake most of the night, insisting on standing guard, and it was only after he seemed sure that the threat had passed that he'd agreed to take a short break while Doss kept watch. He'd been reluctant, but Doss had convinced him that he was going to need his strength in the morning, too. Whatever happened... They were going to have to rebuild and reinforce the barricade, or perhaps even find a new location the monsters weren't aware of. Despite his dad standing guard, Doss hadn't been able to sleep. He supposed it was a mix of adrenaline, fear, and worry keeping him awake. He kept replaying what had happened, how he'd nearly been caught out there unawares how the monster had punched a hole right through the barricade and dug its talons into his shoulder. He flexed it, wincing. His dad had done his best to clean and bind the wound, and Doss knew he'd been lucky. It would heal with no permanent damage, other than a few scars. Assuming, of course, they ever managed to make it out of the cave and off the planet alive. And there was little chance of the latter if they couldn't get back to the beacon— It'd been hard enough to make it with the bits they'd been able to scavenge and repurpose from their kit bags. There was no chance they'd be able to make another. He thought about it, out there on the rocks by the fire. It was basically ready. A couple of last checks and he could activate it. If the monsters hadn't destroyed it, of course. And as far as he knew, they'd gone away. At least for a while. He eyed the prod on the floor by his feet then glanced up at his sleeping dad. Spence looked peaceful, as if the worry of the past few weeks had all just melted away, and they were back on that paradise world, 
soaking in the wonder. This time, though, Doss knew it wouldn't last. As soon as Spence woke up, reality would kick in again, like a boot to the side of the head. He'd remember where they were and what had happened, and how Doss had been injured, and he'd blame himself, like he always did. Doss sighed. He couldn't save his dad from any of that, but at least he could leave the man sleeping for now. Quietly, Doss got to his feet and crossed to the barricade. He peeled away the canvas patch he'd stuck over the ragged hole in the plating and peered out. It was still dark, but then it always was. He couldn't see any of the creatures moving about. The embers of their fire had burned down low so that the few remaining logs gave off a soft orange glow, but little light. He could just make out the shape of his bundled blanket on the rock close by, and the silhouette of his pack. There was no way of knowing if the beacon was still intact, or if it was even still there. Doss frowned. Well, he supposed there was one way of knowing. He paused for a moment, looking out through the barricade. The monsters could be anywhere. They could be standing right there on the other side of the metal plating, just out of view, ready to pounce on him as soon as he stepped outside. Or they might have gone back to wherever it was they slunk off to during the day. He looked back at his sleeping dad, and then at the barricade again. They were going to have to go out there at some point. If they stayed inside, refused to risk going out at all, they'd be as good as dead in a few days anyway. They needed food and water, and they needed that beacon. Decision made. Doss crept back to the other side of the cavern and picked up his dad's prod. It was neat, or something he'd fashioned out of scrap. Lightweight but strong. With a small power pack and the salvaged head of a welder, so far as Doss could make out. Doss returned to the barricade. He looked out again. Still nothing. He felt a shiver of apprehension. Was this a crazy idea? Probably. But if he was going to do it, it was now or never. Stealing himself, he began lifting away the kit they'd piled up earlier, placing it quietly against the wall nearby. Then, before he could talk himself out of it, he took a deep breath and lifted away one of the metal plates. Nothing. Just the cool breeze stirring his hair. Even the storm seemed to have blown themselves out, for now. Clutching the prod across his chest, Doss took a single step out of the camp. Still nothing. He fought back a wave of terror at being out there again. Face the fear and push through, Doss. He turned on the spot, searching for any sign of the monsters. Just rocks, as far as he could see. He'd been right. They must have retreated. He glanced at his abandoned pack. It was just a few steps away. A short run a pause to snatch it all up, and a short run back. Yesterday, he wouldn't have thought twice about it. Now, though, it felt as if he was thinking about running over hot coals. You can do this, Doss. You can do this. He gripped the prod and ran. His feet pounded the rocks. His heart thrummed in his chest. And then he was there, skidding to a halt before his stuff. The beacon was still intact. The monsters had left it alone. 
Das's heart soared. Maybe there was still a way off this miserable world after all. He stooped to collect his pack, holding it by the straps. Something snorted over his shoulder. Without thinking, Das pitched his damaged shoulder low and brought the pack up and around in a wide arc. It caught the creature beneath its drool-encrusted chin, whipping its head back and causing it to stumble. It hissed, momentarily dazed. But Doss knew he had to press his advantage while he could. He palmed the controls for the prod and jabbed it forward, shoving it against the creature's hairy chest even as the blue light flickered to life, discharging a searing bolt of electricity into the monstrous thing. It squealed, lashing out with its claws, its black crystalline eyes glistening in the half-light of the dying embers. It lurched forward, a hulking thing, its leathery wings flashing out to either side, swamping Doss in darkness. Doss ducked, hitting the controls and jabbing again, this time catching it under the arm and causing the enormous thing to stagger back again. Panicked, Doss kept going, jabbing and jabbing until the monster's dark gray fur was smoldering, driving it back, away from him and the camp. He could barely think. He was just reacting, doing everything he could to protect himself and his dad. All he could think about was the fact his father was still asleep in the cave, and he'd left the barricade open. If he let the monster get free, it might beat him back to the cave. Grunting with the exertion, Doss thrust the prod at the thing again. But this time, the creature was ready for him and batted the prod aside with a swipe of its arm. Doss watched in terror as the weapon tumbled from his numb fingers, clattering against the rocks by the monster's feet. It turned to him and raised itself up to its full height, mouth yawning to reveal rows of dagger-like fangs. Doss felt as if his heart was going to burst out of his chest. No, no! He threw his hands up as the creature launched itself at him. And then there was a tremendous thunk, and the creature staggered back, screeching in fury and shaking its head. A large rock had opened a deep gash in its forehead. Get back, yelled Spence, snatching up the prod from where it had fallen. He fired the trigger, jabbing the creature in the throat. This time it had clearly had enough. As it screeched again, threw its arms wide, and launched into the air, its wings billowing as they caught the air currents, lifting it up and away. Doss watched it go, his every breath searing his chest. Then, when he was sure it wasn't circling to come straight back, he glanced at his dad. Spence looked furious. What were you thinking? Doss felt tears welling, but fought them back. I... I just... He mumbled, unable to find the words. I wanted to... Spence gestured to the cave. Get back inside. We can talk about this when you're safe. Doss stooped and grabbed the blanket containing the beacon. And then he ran for the cave as quickly as he could before his legs turned to jelly beneath him. Spence hurried in behind him. Quickly, Dad! The barricade! Doss managed to gasp as he fell to his knees, still clutching the bundled blanket in his arms. It was only a moment's work for Spence to restack the panels of the barricade, 
wedging them back into place against the cave mouth. When he was done, he circled around to crouch before Dawes. His face was a picture of fatherly concern. Why, Dawes? Why did you go and do something like that? Dawes, still gasping for breath, allowed the bundle in his arms to unravel, spilling its contents gently onto the cave floor. The beacon, Dad. I got the beacon. We're going to be okay. Chapter 14 But how can I be certain? It's not that I don't trust in the Force, it's that I'm not always sure I understand it. Rupert and Salandro were hiking across the bleak landscape of Gloam. Above, the sky was marred by the same thick layer of smog they'd seen from orbit, blotting out much of the sun. Where it did pierce the dull gray canopy, it fell in bright shafts, illuminating the glistening wet rocks beneath. Hardly anything grew there, aside from the odd patch of slimy moss, clinging on to life at what felt like the very edge of existence. Had people once lived there? The fact there were ruins suggested they had, sometime long before the world was broken. Perhaps, Rupert hoped, people would one day live there again. Beside Rupert, Salandro laughed softly, but it was a kind laugh and not a teasing one. I'm not sure any of us ever truly understand the Force, Rupert. Even Master Yoda and the others on the Council. We train our entire lives to learn how to harness the abilities it grants us, and the responsibilities, too. We learn to trust in ourselves through the Force, as beings that exist as a part of it. But there are no certainties. All we can do is put our faith in ourselves and others and allow the Force to guide us toward the truth. But what about what happened on Abydos? said Rupert. She skipped slightly to avoid stepping in a pool that had formed among the rocks. What happened on Abydos? said Salandro. She looked genuinely confused. I led us to the gully. I was so sure that's where we'd find the Catacoot City. But instead, I put us in danger. Salandro stopped walking. She shook her head. No, Rupert. Listen to me. You put your trust in the Force, and you led us exactly where we needed to be. If we hadn't followed your instincts, we would never have met Midic. Without Midic, we might not have been able to persuade the other Catacoots that we were there as friends. You didn't make a mistake. You did as you needed to do. I'm very proud of the Jedi and the person you're becoming. She set off walking again. Everything you did put us on the path to being here, right now. Rupert grinned. She gestured around her. Yeah, and who wouldn't want to be here? Salandro laughed. Like I said, we're exactly where we need to be. I believe that, Rupert. The Force reached out to you back on the ship. You were right to let it guide us, despite my initial concerns. Ahead of them... The ground rose toward a gentle peak. The slope was covered in loose shale that caused Rupert's boots to slip and slide as she walked. Sometimes I have trouble letting go, said Salandro. But you should never think that I doubt you, Rupert. Quite the opposite. I lost someone a long time ago, 
and learning to let go was very difficult, but it was necessary. One day you will come to understand that. In training a Padawan, the Master learns as much as the pupil, perhaps even more. I'm sorry, said Ruper. She had heard from the others back at the temple that Salandro had lost a Padawan on a dangerous mission many years before. But this was the first time her master had ever brought it up. Ruper knew better than to press for details, though. If Salandro wanted to talk about it, she would. Salandro nodded her acknowledgement. The moment stretched. I intend to make a pilgrimage to Jeddah, said Salandro. When circumstances allow, it's been many years since I observed the season of light and looked upon my reflection in the Kibber mirrors beneath the Dome of Deliverance. I think it might be time. Jeddah. Ruper had read about the Holy City in the library on Coruscant and longed to walk its ancient streets, to spend time among the pilgrims of the many sects that saw it as a place of worship. Ruper was about to ask Salandro whether she could tag along and join her on her pilgrimage, but stopped herself, buttoning down her rush of excitement. People made pilgrimages for all sorts of reasons, and this might be something that Salandro wished or needed to do alone. They approached the ridge. There the shale was speckled with fragments of something dull and black. Ruper stooped to pick one up. It was a hunk of metal, charred black from some sort of fire or explosion. It left a film of dirt on her fingers. She handed it to Salandro, who turned it over in her palm. Starship hull, said Salandro. Perhaps there was a crash or... Her voice trailed off as they reached the crest of the ridge. Down below, where the shale sloped toward a flat spur of rock, were the remains of a ship. A familiar ship. One almost identical to the Umberfall, a Pathfinder vessel. Oh, said Ruper. The two Jedi stood and stared at the shocking scene of destruction before them. The ship had clearly detonated from the inside out, bursting open like a flower opening toward the sun. Bits of the hull were strewn in every direction, and even the dark stone showed signs of scorching where the temperature had reached abominable heights. There wasn't much left of the rear section of the ship, but the thick hull plates had shielded much of the nose of the vessel, including the cockpit, from damage. Except now it was upside down, presumably flipped over by the force of the explosion. It was a vision of utter devastation. Ruper felt her pulse quicken. She followed Salandro down the slope. Be careful, Ruper. Stay alert. They approached the wreck with caution. But the heat of the flames had long died away, leaving just the blackened, twisted frame of the ship. A ship that had once been people's home. Ruper shuddered, imagining how she would have felt if it had been the Umberfall there. Jedi weren't supposed to form attachments, especially to starships. But that didn't mean she could just turn those feelings off. And it didn't mean she couldn't empathize with those who had lost. Those like Salandro. They all had to learn to deal with those emotions. They weren't expected to feel nothing. They just had to try their best. Ruper circled the ruined ship. Everything was eerily silent and still. It was called the Foundling, said Salandro. 
because Rock always believed in helping waifs and strays, those who were lost and needed help. I believe he still does, said Ruper. Salandro offered her a sad smile. What could have caused an explosion like this, said Ruper. A massive engine failure, perhaps, said Salandro. A crash landing? Ruper didn't think that sounded right. If it was a crash, surely the front of the ship would be more damaged, too. And how many engine failures have you heard about since we've been out here? Salandro shrugged. I know. But it certainly wasn't the creatures Rillick described. They walked around to the front of the ship, where the cockpit appeared to be largely intact, if upside down, from what Ruper could see through the forward viewport, which was cracked with a spiderweb of fissures. There's no way in. Salandro drew her lightsaber. Stand back. The blade flared to life with a familiar hum. It seemed even more brilliant against the drab backdrop of Gloam's persistent night. Salandro approached the side of the cockpit, held her lightsaber hilt in both hands, and jammed the searing blade into the metal hull plate. It fizzed and spat as she dragged it around in a wide circle, leaving a bright, glowing furrow in its wake. Liquid metal dripped, striking the ground by her feet. She grunted with the effort as she finally completed the looping incision, and then she stepped back as the newly cut panel fell outward, clanging noisily against the rocks by her feet. Musty old air sighed out in its wake. Zalandro gestured for Rupert to look inside. Careful not to brush her robes against the still molten edge of the new opening, Rupert crept into the wrecked ship, her hand straying to the hilt of one of her own lightsabers. An ill feeling stirred in the pit of her stomach as she took in the scene. It felt odd, walking on the ceiling, looking up at what should have been the floor. Inside it stank of old smoke and burnt metal. It should have seemed familiar. The layout of the cockpit was pretty much identical to the Umberfall, except for the fact that the instrument panels, control desk, and monitors had all been smashed. It looked as though someone had taken a heavy tool to the inside of the cockpit, trashing everything in sight. Even the chairs had been ripped out and mangled, and lay in a heap in the corner. It was a very deliberate act of violence. Salandro stepped up into the scene of ruin behind Ruper, holding her lightsaber aloft for extra illumination. This was no accident, she said, taking in the scene. This was done before the explosion. Whoever's responsible must have done this and left the ship before it detonated. Sabotage, said Ruper, just like Master Rock said in his message. It looks that way. Ruper rubbed the back of her neck. It doesn't tally with Rillick's story. He said he found the ship, but the creatures had destroyed it. Unless he really did believe they were capable of doing this. Salandro gestured at the damaged console directly above her head. He probably didn't stick around long enough to be certain. He would have been terrified and desperate to get away. You're probably right, said Ruper. Salandro always counseled her to keep an open mind and try to think the best of people. But something about the way the foundling had been destroyed just didn't feel right. 
She was beginning to think that there was more going on there than they'd been led to believe. Had Rillick told them the truth about what happened on Gloam? Time will tell, said Zalandro. She hopped down out of the ship. Which way now? We keep heading west, said Ruper, jumping down beside her and indicating the way toward the storm-ridden horizon. Whoever is out there, they're waiting for us, reaching out to us. Salandro set out across the Sea of Shale. Well, we'd better hurry up then, hadn't we? Chapter 15 Have you heard anything from the others? Deatrix was fiddling with the comlink as she walked, trying to figure out a way to boost the signal. Her tongue was poking out of the corner of her mouth. She looked up to see Middick watching her expectantly. I'm sorry? I said, have you heard anything from the others? Deatrix shook her head. No, the comms are still down. She glanced up at the rupturing sky. It could be storms creating interference. Middick shook her head. No, the storms were here long before the comms went down. This is a recent problem. Deatrix slipped the comlink back into her pack. If there's a problem, Kim and Amos will find it. You mean the one who got all excited after he drank the Hibonacho juice and his friend? said Middick. Deatrix was far from an expert on catacoot facial expressions, but she could see that the other woman looked dubious. Oh, that. Yeah, comms engineers are all a bit... odd. It's a good thing. Comes with the territory. All the best engineers have a wild side. She ran a hand through her stripe of multicolored hair as if to underline her point. All pilots, too. Medic still didn't look convinced. Plus, they have GT-11 with them. You'll keep them in line. Medic shrugged and nodded. She clearly had more faith in the droid than she did in the engineers themselves. Deatrix checked the readout on her tracomp, the digital compass she wore on her wrist. We're about halfway there. The city should be coming into view over that outcropping soon. They trudged on in the direction Deatrix had indicated. It's strange being here, after hearing all the tales about this place, said Middick. Deatrix noticed she had wrapped her wings around herself protectively, as if she were giving herself a hug. How does it compare to what you imagined? It's worse, said Middick. Far worse. I knew that Gloam was a blighted place, damaged beyond repair, but even the images couldn't prepare me for this. She sighed. When I was a child, I used to sit on the edge of the gully, the one where we met, and look up at the night sky. I'd imagine all the adventures I could have on that twin world, hanging up there in the sky like a lantern. It used to be so bright. Her shoulders slumped. But even then, the years of mining were already taking their toll. As I grew up, I watched it change. In time, what had once been a bright and welcome sight became the symbol of our shame. The black clouds closed in. The storms racked the surface. People grew sick. And still the ships left Abydos empty 
and returned full, and the drills bit deeper and deeper. I'm sorry, said Deatrix, but it's not too late. The Republic can help. There are programs dedicated to restoring worlds like this one. Can they bring back the ones who died? Can they restore our history? Your history? Middick shook her head. Never mind. It is I who should apologize. Here you are, searching for your missing friends, trying only to help my people. Your Republic must be a happy place. Deatrix laughed. Sometimes, but that's the thing about the Republic. It isn't so much a place as an idea, a way of living, a way for people from different worlds and backgrounds to come together and help each other. Sometimes that works. Other times it's harder. Now you sound like one of your Jedi friends. Deatrix clasped her hands over her heart. You wound me! Her calm link trilled loudly. Frowning, she studied it for a moment. Now that's unexpected. What is it? Have we gone the wrong way again? Again? I told you. That was a simple misunderstanding. The calm link trilled again. A warning? Prompted Medic. No, said Deatrix. A distress signal. It's just activated. From over that way. She pointed to the left. Away from the city? Said Medic. Yeah, said Deatrix. She studied the horizon. But there was nothing but more jagged hills of dark rock. It's local, too. How was it bypassing the interference that's affecting the other comms? Deatrix shrugged. It's broadcasting on a wide spectrum of frequencies, and it must be close enough that we can pick it up locally, rather than relying on the satellite relays. Salandro and Ruper? No. They went in the other direction. Besides, it's not one of our beacons. The cold pattern is unfamiliar. A trap, then? Deatrix frowned. She couldn't exactly rule out a trap, but weren't there supposed to be dangerous creatures on Gloam? Since when had animals learned how to activate distress beacons? I don't think so. Perhaps it's the missing Pathfinders, then, said Medic. If they escaped from the city, they may have set up a camp somewhere nearby. Then why only activate the beacon now? And again, the call pattern would be familiar. Deatrix turned on the spot, trying to figure out what to do. Now, this is short range, different. She looked at Middick. Could there be anyone else on Gloam? It's possible, said the Catacoot. The workers were evacuated long before Rock and his team ever came to Abadaz. But as my father said, some did go missing. We searched for them before the evacuation, but they were never found. Other off-worlders could have come here too, but it seems unlikely. She sniffed, her bat-like snout twitching. It's far more likely that survivors from the attack have been forced to fashion a new beacon after theirs went missing or was destroyed, is it not? Deatrix beamed at her. Yes, yes it is. She set out, pivoting to follow the new signal toward its origin. So I guess we're going that way then? Said Medic.
Chapter 16 It felt as if the trees were closing in all around them. Their angular, barren branches formed vicious-looking shapes in the gloom. Pools of shadow seemed to describe the outlines of people lurking among the thorns, leaving Ruper with the distinct sense that they were being watched. They'd wandered into an area of dense mangroves, wading through ankle-deep water where the rocks were covered in slimy moss. Carrion birds wheeled above their heads, squawking noisily. Occasionally, something ropey and slick would bump against her leg in the water. These were the first real signs of life they'd encountered on Gloam, and it felt to Ruper like some sort of last gasp of a forgotten wilderness, a final stand for natural life in a dismal, dying world. She knew she was being dramatic. There had to be forests and rivers and seas elsewhere on the planet. Otherwise, there'd be no breathable atmosphere at all. At least that was how most worlds worked. That meant it was a place still worth saving. Perhaps one day this place would be brimming with life again, and the skies would be clear and blue. She could only hope. Ew! She said as a slimy root brushed against the back of her knee. She heard Salandro chuckle quietly to herself nearby. They'd found evidence of a small settlement as they'd passed through, beyond the Shale Valley where they'd discover the wreck of the foundling. A few scattered homesteads and cobbled streets, the remains of a village or hamlet. Perhaps the people who'd lived there, Catacoot, Ruper imagined, had been farmers, working the land before the soil was all eroded and the black bedrock was exposed. A peaceful life, just like the farmers on Rome, the agricultural world where Ruper had been born and spent her early years before the Jedi came and took her to Coruscant to train. That might have been her life, too. If the Force had not pulled her in a different direction, it wouldn't have been so bad. Nor would it have been as exciting as being out on the frontier with Salandro. Perhaps her master had been right, after all. Perhaps the Force had led her exactly where she needed to be, by Salandro's side. They were drawing closer to their destination. She could sense it. The nearness of the light she sought to find in the darkness. Its pull was getting stronger. This way, said Ruper as they came to a forking path through the mangroves. Salandro nodded, following without question, her feet sloshing in the cool water that was now up around their calves. We're close. Rupert closed her eyes, reaching out with the force. Here the world seemed vibrant and bright, an oasis in the darkness, as the color of the trees and the birds and the fish erupted all around her, the flowing tide of life. Rupert reveled in it, drinking it all in. This is how the world should be, full of life and light. She pushed out farther, beyond the trees, toward a colder, darker place where the light was fading, the color slowly leaching away. We haven't got long, she said, her eyes still pressed shut. Their color is fading. I think they might be wounded. I think... Ruper! Salandro's warning cry cut through the haze of her vision. Ruper's eyes blinked open. Her lightsabers were already in her hands, flickering to life. 
She moved instinctively, ducking to the right, swinging her blades up before her defensively. A huge shadow passed over her left shoulder, splashing down into the water beside her. She danced back, weapons raised, stirring the stream bed as she planted her feet. The creature gave a low growl. It was a massive thing that looked like a cross between a large charhound and a giant cat with antlers. It walked on all fours, and its thin coat of green and black fur revealed rippling muscles along the entire length of its body. It had three eyes across the center of its head, and a set of jaws that opened exceptionally wide to reveal twin rows of needle-fine teeth. A pair of antlers protruded from its forehead, black and spiky, just like the trees. Rupert eased herself back, moving slowly away from the beast as it lowered itself into the water, yellow eyes fixed on her every move. It was getting ready to pounce again. She risked a glance at Salandro and wished she hadn't. The Jedi Master had drawn her lightsaber and shield and was circling back in the same way as Rupert, so that within moments, they would close the gap between them, protecting their rear flanks. But two more of the enormous beasts were closing in on Salandro too, and Rupert realized that they were being herded, their escape routes closed off. So you think these are Relic's so-called monsters? Said Rupert as she felt Salandro's presence at her back. No, came Salandro's reply. Her voice seemed calm, level. How did she do that? I think these are just very lonely, very hungry predators. Just? said Rupert. They looked like killing machines from where she was standing. Defend yourself, said Salandro. But if we can minimize loss of life, then we must. These beasts have no malign intent. They want to eat us, said Rupert, trying desperately to keep her tone respectful. They believe us to be their prey. We must show them we are not. Salandro spun as she completed her sentence, throwing up her shield arm as one of the beasts launched itself at her, springing up out of the water and leaving a stream of droplets in its wake. It would have collided with her head on, but her neat spin and sidestep meant that it sailed past, unable to halt its own momentum, and was pushed off course by Salandro's shield, which hummed as it struck the creature's flank. Then Rupert was spinning too, whirling her lightsabers in a wide circle to create a defensive barrier between herself and the other beast, which had risen from the murky water and was stalking around her, its antlered head swaying from side to side. She heard Salandro grunt, followed by the ringing clang of her shield, presumably connecting with the beast's horns. The one facing Rupert opened its jaws and bellowed a thunderous challenge. And then it leapt. Rupert fainted left, then darted right, both lightsabers, one in each hand, swinging up and around in a synchronized arc that grazed the tips of the leaping beast's antlers, slicing them free. The severed chunks of horn tumbled through the air and splashed into the water by Rupert's feet as the creature, wailing, thudded into the stream, flopping clumsily onto its side. It righted itself immediately, shaking water from its fur. The tips of its antlers were blunted, 
but their loss didn't seem to have put the creature off. They must be very hungry, said Rupert, falling back into a circling pattern with the beast. They're not giving up. I think they're trying to tire us out, said Salandro. Circling and attacking until one of us makes a mistake, drops her guard. Great, said Rupert beneath her breath. This trip to Gloam really wasn't turning out to be the sort of adventure she'd had in mind. Getting eaten by a hungry animal definitely wasn't near the top of her list. The creature leapt again, and this time Rupert was forced to throw herself into the water to avoid its flashing jaws. Her head ducked beneath the surface for a moment before she came up again, spluttering, calling deep on the force to push her up and out, mere moments before the beast charged. Its jaws closed where her throat had been just seconds before. She landed softly back on her feet, this time behind the creature, dripping wet. This isn't working. Salandro nodded. Here, let me try something. She extinguished her lightsaber, slipping the hilt back into the holster at her belt. The three creatures had now reformed the loose circle around the two Jedi and were creeping ever closer, trying to push them back among the dagger-like branches of the trees. I think you'd better hurry, said Rupert. Salandro flicked a glance in her direction and grinned. Remember, Rupert, the Force is with us. She unhooked her shield from her arm and held it out before her, facing the circling beasts. What? Started Rupert, but her voice trailed off as she realized exactly what her master was doing. Salandro had released the shield, which remained hovering in the air before her. She closed her eyes, extending her right hand, palm open, fingers turning slowly as if nudging around an invisible dial. The shield trembled for a moment before shooting forward, propelled by the force. It struck one of the beasts flat on the snout, causing it to rear up on its hind legs, mewling in fright. Salandro flicked her wrist and turned, her eyes still closed, and the shield soared up into the air, swooping around behind her in a wide defensive arc. She pushed outward with her other empty hand, palm flat. The shield swooped again, following her directions, changing course in midair to dip low and bash the second beast, also flat against the end of its glossy pink nose. The creature lurched back, screeching, raising its paws as if to fend off the hovering shield, but the shield had already gone. The third beast, having witnessed the attacks on its kin, had backed away from Rupert and lowered itself into the water, presumably trying to make itself less of an obvious target. Salandro was having none of it. The shield tipped on its axis at the crook of her finger, and then a sweep of her arm sent it dipping low, trailing across the surface of the stream with a hiss. The creature reared out of the water, mouth agape in fear as it, too, was struck firmly on the end of its snout with the flat of the humming shield. Salandro extended her arm, and the shield whipped out of the water, returning, dripping, to her hand. She slid it back onto her arm. Her eyes flickered open. The beasts were all watching her nervously. She took a step forward, 
raising her shield arm. As one, the beasts took a step back. Leave now. Rupert knew that the creatures couldn't understand her. But on some instinctive level, they must have known what she intended, as they all turned on the spot and charged off into the mangroves on the other side of the stream. Salandro huffed a relieved sigh. Well, I'm glad that worked. Rupert was staring at our master in wide-eyed appreciation. That was incredible. Salandro shrugged. It was necessary. But Rupert caught a glimpse of another hidden smile curling at the corner of Salandro's mouth. Are you okay? Hurt? Rupert shook her head. No, just wet. The other woman nodded, relieved, and gestured in the direction they'd been traveling before the attack. Well, you'd better lead on before they decide to come back. Rupert pointed at a clump of trees. Just there, up ahead, she said. She sloshed through the stream toward the gently sloping bank, where the vegetation grew suddenly thinner. She'd reached what appeared to be the edge of the mangrove area, where the spiky trees and shallow water gave way to rockier dry land. Yet there, the rocks had been shaped, carved into what had once been a beautiful cylindrical tower, but had slumped, its side crumbling away to become a mass of strewn masonry around the base of what remained of the structure. Something about the place seemed to call to Rupert, urging her on. She stepped out among the fallen hunks of rock. She could see where the blocks had once been expertly shaped, engraved with unfamiliar geometric patterns. What is this place? She said as she crouched to examine what appeared to be a fragment of wall painting, still clinging to the underside of a broken piece of black rock. She couldn't make out anything beyond what looked to be the edge of a white robe threaded with gold. She felt Solandro step up behind her. I can't quite believe it, Rupert. Even though it's right here before my eyes, you've led us to the ruins of an ancient Jedi temple. Rupert looked up at the shattered tower, her eyes wide. Oh, she said. Chapter 17 Obik was fussing again. Rillick wondered if it was just in the Marillion's nature. He'd filled at least nine vials of blood samples already, and now he was talking about having the droid, which he called Nibs, for some annoying reason, carry out some scans. It seemed like a lot. Did the medic suspect something? So far as I can tell, the crystallization of your lung tissues hasn't progressed as far as we'd all feared, but we do need to find a way to reverse it, or at least halt its progress before you lose too much function. Obik spoke while he ran tests on the blood samples at a small workstation he'd folded out from a panel in the wall. They were in the medical bay at the rear of the Umberfall. Rillick was lying on a small bed, hooked up to a series of bleeping monitors. Outside, the wind was howling. I can see why your people are concerned. Obik continued. Although these minerals are harmless in their natural, unrefined form, 
They work like parasites once they've entered your body. They seem to be activated by contact with catacoot blood. Once they've taken root, they have the power to alter your physiology, turning healthy tissue into copies of the original mineral cells. It's almost as if they're alive. Not in the same sense as you or I, but more like a deadly plant or fungus. They colonize the host body and slowly take control. As far as I can tell, the host eventually dies. But the parasitic minerals try to keep it going, even beyond the point of death. He paused, holding one of the vials up to the light. Rillick could see that the blood inside it had begun to crystallize, taking on a shimmering hue. Just like the stuff we mine on Gloam. Obik placed the vial on a rack, alongside several others. If you hadn't originated on another world, I'd have assumed the minerals evolved at the same time as the early catacoot and adapted their reproduction cycle to take advantage of the abundant population. So you're saying they use us like eggs to grow new copies of themselves? Said Rillick. Yes, a little bit like that, replied Obik. In theory, the host bodies would allow the minerals to spread and defend the colony. Although, I'd expect only a handful of hosts to prove successful in this way. Most people who become infected will simply die and remain dead. In a way, it's absolutely fascinating. He glanced over his shoulder, shooting Rillick a beaming smile. But more to the point, I'm certain that, with the proper time and equipment, we should be able to engineer a cure for those who've been infected, including you. He turned his attention back to his work. Relic breathed a sigh of relief. So the answer was no. It didn't seem that Obik suspected anything. Good. Relic gave a rasping cough. Thank you, he said, drawing a deep breath. I had my doubts about the Republic coming here. I don't mind admitting that. But I can see now I was wrong. He ended with another cough, for effect. It was true that his lungs did feel as though they were burning half the time, and he knew that his days were numbered, just like the rest of his old mining gang. But these Republic types seemed so credulous, so ready to believe anything they were told. All they wanted to do was help. It was sickening. Help wasn't going to make anybody rich, and that was the only thing Rillick had ever dreamed of. He wasn't about to allow a bunch of fools like Obik and his friends to spoil that for him. Not now. Not when he was so close. And not when he had limited time left to enjoy it. He'd heard talk of cures before. All the great catacoot scientists who'd boasted of medical breakthroughs being a matter of weeks away had since been forced to give up and admit defeat. The disease was incurable. They all knew that. That wasn't why the Republic had been invited in. No one was expecting them to find a cure for the minor sickness. They wanted help finding a new, cleaner power source, which meant everything that Rillick had devoted his life to was about to be consigned to history, forgotten. So the way he saw it, his people owed him, for the life he'd miss when the sickness ran its course. For the chance to live out his dreams. Kiddick and the others were too blind to see it. 
They were the ones who'd gotten him into this mess. But Rillick wasn't about to sit by, idle, and put up with it. Not if he could do something about it. He groaned, rolling over onto his side. Said the droid, which Rillick realized had been hovering above his bed, just out of sight. He'd have to watch that when the time came. Thanks, Nibs. Obik put his vials down and crossed to Rillick's bedside. I'm sorry, he said. But I promise you, I will find a way to help. Rillick nodded, closing his eyes and coughing into his pillow. I can give you something to help you sleep, said Obik. Rillick waved him away. No, no, I'll be fine, he croaked. The last thing he wanted was to miss his chance because he was too busy snoring. All right, said Obik, but I'll be just over there if you need me. Relic watched the medic return to his workstation and start making up slides to examine beneath his microscope. Oh, yes, he thought, stifling a smile. I know exactly where you're going to be. Chapter 18 are you sure that thing isn't leading us out into the middle of nowhere? Said Middick. Deatrix looked up from her wrist comp. She frowned. The landscape there seemed empty of... everything. No trees, no lakes, no ruins. Just endless stretches of undulating black rock and... The remains of a campfire. Just sitting there, perched on a shelf of rock. Deatrix couldn't believe her eyes. Her heart leapt. Look over there! She hurried over. Middick followed. Flakes of white and gray ash had scattered across the nearby rocks, carried by the breeze from where the burnt stubs of three old logs still leaned against one another. There was other evidence of recent occupation in the immediate area, too. A few small animal bones that had been picked clean. A makeshift spit that had, presumably been used to roast said animal over the flames. A few broken electrical components stuck in the crevices of the rocks, where they'd obviously been discarded or dropped. Someone's been living out here, said Deatrix. As impossible as that seems, they've been cooking meals and building something. It could even be the beacon we've been tracking. Maybe even more than one person, said Medic. Maybe said Deatrix brightly. Perhaps even a young human boy and an older man might even be his father. Deatrix frowned. Well, that's strangely specific, but I suppose anything is possible. She looked up to see Middick grinning. What? Middick jabbed a finger over Deatrix's shoulder. Deatrix turned to see a young human boy and an older man who looked as if he might be the boy's father standing in the mouth of a small cave. She peered at them for a moment and then turned back to Middick. Have they been there all along? Middick shrugged, which made her wings flap loosely by her sides. Um, yes, and I don't think they're particularly pleased to see us. Confused, Deatrix turned to look at them again. She narrowed her eyes. Now that Middick had mentioned it, they did look a little scared. The older man was clutching a pole with some sort of device affixed to one end. 
The other end was glowing with a flickering electrical current. The boy's shoulder was bandaged up with rags. Dietrich gave him a little wave. He looked unsure about whether to wave back. Who are you? called the older man. Dietrich started to walk toward them. I'm Dia. The man cut her off. Wait! Don't come any closer! Dietrich stopped in her tracks. She held out both her hands to show she wasn't carrying a weapon. My name is Dietrix. I'm part of a Republic Pathfinder team. We're here on Gloom looking for survivors of an earlier mission. Some of our friends have gone missing. Do you know anything about that? Were you here with them? No, said the man. He was gripping his pole very tightly. We don't. We're not part of any team, and you're the first person we've seen since we were stranded here. So it was your distress beacon we were tracking, said Deatrix. She sensed Midic coming over to stand beside her and saw the man bristle. It was our beacon, said the boy. I'm Doss, Doss Lefbrook, and this is my dad, Spence. Midic clicked her tongue. I thought they were related. Deatrix smiled at the boy. Did you build it yourself? Doss nodded. Out of scavenged parts? Another nod. Deatrix beamed. Wow! I'm impressed. You'll have to show me later. How did you manage to find a wave regulator out here? She didn't wait for him to answer. No. Hold on. Don't tell me. You had a... Let me guess. Uh... She snapped her fingers. No, I can't think. I stripped it from the coolant system of one of the downed mining ships, said Doss. He looked pleased with himself. Nice work, said Deatrix. So are you going to show us around or what? She took another step forward. Spence raised his pole again. I warned you. Dad, perhaps it's not what we think. Middick cleared her throat. And what do you think? Spence eyed her warily. It's just... you're one of them. A catacute? said Deatrix. A monster, said Doss. The things that come for us in the night. Now look here, started Deatrix. You can't just go... It's all right, said Medic, waving her quiet. I understand. You do? Yes. The creatures. The ones Rillick told you about. The ones that attacked your friends. They look like us. Deatrix shook her head, confused. They look like you? Like a catacoot? Midic sighed. Yes. That's how the stories go. Monstrous versions of ourselves, from our ancient past, that come to hunt us when we misbehave. Hulking, twisted spirits of catacoot who died in ages past. We all thought it was just a legend told to children to scare them into behaving themselves. But it seems the legends are true. The creatures are real. And these people have seen them. They were here earlier, said Doss. Four or five of them. He glanced around nervously, as if he expected them to arrive at any moment. They used to come after we'd packed up camp and gone to bed each night. We figured out their habits, kept out of their way as best we could. But then they changed them. They surprised us yesterday, and they were still here this morning. 
One of them did that to you? Asked Deatrix, pointing to Dasha's shoulder. He nodded. I'm sorry, said Medic. I hope it doesn't hurt too much. So, you're not like them? Said Doss. His tone was hopeful. If I was, do you think I'd be standing here talking to you about it? Said Medic wryly. I suppose not, said Doss. He stepped out from beside his father and walked over, extending his hand. It's nice to meet you. Medic. Doss? Spence warned. It's all right, Dad. Come on. These people are here to help us. He looked at Deatrix. Aren't you? Of course, said Deatrix. We have a ship, and there are more of us, including some Jedi, looking for our missing friends. We'd be glad to take you somewhere safe, once we've figured out what's happened to them. The boy's eyes were as wide as the search lamps on the Umberfall. Jedi? Deatrix nodded, her lip curling into a grin. Most people had never seen a Jedi, at least not outside of a hollow recording. But many of them had heard the stories about all the amazing things they could do and about the work they were doing out on the frontier, helping people without the desire for profit or personal gain. Deatrix was going to enjoy seeing the look on Doss's face when he met Salandro and Ruper. Have they brought their lightsabers? said Doss. Of course, said Deatrix. And Master Show is a shield, too. I think you're going to love it. Doss beamed. Spence had come forward to stand beside his son. He lowered his makeshift weapon and then reached out and shook Middick's hand. I'm sorry, he said. It's just, we've been living in fear these past few weeks. I think I'd just about forgotten what a friendly face looks like. I'm very glad to meet you. Medic smiled. It's incredible you've managed to survive this long. How did you get stranded here? Ah, said Spence. Well, that's a long story. He sighed heavily. Then I've got just the thing, said Deatrix, reaching into her pack. Fresh provisions and tea. Assuming you're about ready for a decent meal? Spence shook his head in grateful disbelief. If you only knew... Well then, said Deatrix, you can tell us all about it while we eat. And how about we see to that leg while we're at it too? And your arm, Doss? Spence wrapped his arm around Doss's shoulders. Thank you. Seemed to be about all the words he could muster. We'd been out prospecting for new hyperspace routes. It's what we do, you see, me and Doss. Travel the unexplored routes. Seek out new worlds. Meet new people. Explore. Spence took a swig from the tin can he was using as a mug. Deatrix nodded. Not so different from us, then. She glanced at Medic. Well, the Pathfinder teams, I mean. She took a sip of her own tea. Spence glanced at Doss, as if saying this in front of the boy made him uncomfortable. Deatrix supposed it was understandable not wanting to stir things up again by going back over whatever miserable story had left them stranded. We got word of a new route, he said. A hyperspace lane that hadn't been charted before. Dietrich nodded. Now, what you've got to understand is that this was the big one. The real deal. His eyes were wide, like he was seeing some faraway place. 
The sort of score that only comes along once in a generation. There have been tales about the planet at the end of that hyperspace lane for millennia. A paradise. A place beyond anyone's wildest imaginings. One of the true wonders of the galaxy. And now we had a lead on where to find it. Spence sniffed and took another gulp of his tea. Problem was, so did another prospector. Fella called Sunshine Dobbs. Now, I'd worked with Sunshine before and always took him to be a decent sort. So when we both discovered we were on the same trail, we agreed to pool our resources and split the findings between us. Sounds fair, said Deatrix. And it was fair. You see, we have a code out here, us prospectors. We see each other, right? And once we've agreed to split a take, we always see it through. I'm sensing a but. Spence tapped the side of his nose. You're a sharp one. Yep. There's a bud. You see, finding that place was like running a gauntlet. Once you were through the hyperspace lane, which was no mean feat, you had to pierce the veil around the planet. Deatrix leaned forward. She was caught up in Spence's story, hanging on every word. The veil? Aye. A kind of, well, an ocean of living water that's wrapped around the atmosphere. That's the only way I can describe it. Like a protective, electrified bubble. But not, if you get what I mean. Not really, said Medic with a sniff. Doss chuckled. Anyway, suffice to say, it was a perilous place to fly. And our ship, the Silver Streak, took it hard. We had to make a crash landing. But it didn't matter, right? Because Sunshine Dobbs was right behind you. Spence nudged Doss in the arm. Told you she was sharp. So we set her down, and let me tell you, the place we'd found at the end of that hyperspace run, well... Spence puffed out his cheeks and exhaled loudly. Head, take your breath away. About as far from a place like this as you could imagine. So it really was a paradise, said Deatrix. And then some. Go on, tell her, Doss. Doss shrugged. He's right. It was like, well... I can't explain it, really. It had more colors than I'd ever seen. And the sunlight was perfect. And the smell of the flowers. I know this doesn't make any sense, but it just felt like home. Like everything in the whole galaxy was still and at peace. And you never had to worry ever again. It must have been wonderful, said Medic. I'm surprised you ever left. Ah, well... There was the matter of the agreement we had with Sunshine, and we needed to fetch someone to help fix our ship. So Sunshine agreed to give us a ride, said Doss. Spence nodded. He was supposed to get us back to Batuu. Then he hit engine trouble and needed to make a repair stop. We figured he'd taken some damage during our exit through the veil. We put down here, wherever here is. Gloam, said Medic. Gloam? echoed Spence. He glanced at Doss. Fitz. Anyway, while we were trying to get our bearings exploring, Sunshine took the opportunity to make a run for it, tossed our packs out with just about enough rations and equipment to survive, and abandoned us here, said Doss. That's awful, said Deatrix. Figured he'd renege on our deal and take the spoils for himself. 
said Spence. Said he'd left us with a fighting chance by leaving us our packs. Middick made a hissing sound that Deatrix imagined was a sign of her disapproval. Dishonorable, she said. And the rest, you know, said Doss. We've been here for a couple of weeks, I think. Surviving by boiling the rainwater and catching and eating scrabblers. Scrabblers? said Deatrix. The little rat lizards you can dig out from between the rocks, explained Doss. They don't taste so good, but we didn't have any choice. We built the beacon out of parts from our packs and bits we salvaged from some of the abandoned mining ships. Are they nearby? These mining ships? Yeah. Well, a couple of hours hike. They're not far from the ruined city in the cliff. You've seen the ruined city? Deatrix placed her half-full can of tea on the ground. Have you been inside? Did you see anyone else? I've seen it, said Doss. But I didn't go near it. The whole place looked abandoned. We've not seen another person here until, well, the two of you. He hugged himself, as if the very thought of the place filled him with unease. It's like the miners just up and left. There's three whole cargo containers full of mineral ore that have never been shipped off-world, out on the landing pad. Deatrix caught Medic's eye. This didn't sound quite right. If there was unrefined mineral ore there, just waiting to be processed, why hadn't the Catacoot already taken it back to Abydos? Given how desperate they were for fuel, Deatrix would have thought it would have been a priority, even with the creatures. It wasn't as if anyone would have to do any more digging in the mine shafts. Can you show us? Doss nodded. Now, hang on a minute, said Spence. I thought you were going to help us get out of here. We are, said Deatrix. But like I said, we have to find out what happened to our friends first. The last they were seen, they went into that city. How do you know they're still alive? said Spence. We don't. But if you're still here after all this time... We'll help. Of course we will, said Doss. He got to his feet, dusting himself down. I'd better collect my stuff. What now? said Spence. Doss laughed, grabbing his father's arm and pulling him up. No time like the present, he said. And then his features darkened. And besides, we don't know when those things are going to be back. We'll be safer if we're moving. They won't know where to find us. Spence gave a reluctant nod. I suppose I'd better bring my prod then. Chapter 19 The ruins of the Jedi Temple were scattered over a wide area, overgrown with a thick carpet of moss. The ragged edges of the fallen masonry had been blunted by time scoured by the wind and rain to take on new shapes, like pieces of a puzzle that would never fit together again. As Rupert meandered through the wreckage, she found herself wondering how many years had passed since the temple had last been inhabited. The place still had a certain kind of peace to it, a special sort of reverence as if the land itself remembered what it had once been. She supposed a place that had once been so strong in the forest might never lose that feeling. Nearby, Salandro was climbing over a pile of heaped boulders. 
These were moved here recently, she called. Rupert went over to take a look. Sure enough, it was clear from the large indentations in the moss that the boulders had once been strewn around the area, but had recently been gathered into a large pile. It towered over Rupert's head, at least twice her height, and seemed to lean against the base of a ruined building. Salandra was standing on one of the boulders, peering at something within the gaps in the uneven stones. I thought so. She dusted her hands and hopped back down to Rupert's side. What is it? asked Rupert. There's a doorway or opening of some kind behind here, said Salandro, jabbing her thumb in the direction of the boulders. Someone's built a barricade. She tugged on her earlobe thoughtfully. Or a prison. Someone built this? said Rupert. But how could they move all these massive stones? Without the right equip... She stopped abruptly as the answer dawned on her. Ah... The Force. Someone had used the Force. But that's good, isn't it? She said. We won't know until we open it, said Salandro. Give me a hand. Rupert nodded. Together, the two Jedi extended their arms. Rupert closed her eyes, reaching out with her senses. She saw the heaped stones like anchors in the swirling colors of the Force. Obstacles stopping its natural flow, and so she willed them to move. At first, they didn't budge. Beside Rupert, Salandro...